Good morning. Welcome to this week's Read All About It. I'm Marshall Moore, and I'm Yuri Vitachi. We're going to be talking about two books that have been relatively recently published, and after that, we'll be discussing a classic. And at the end of the show,、uh, today's classic will be Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. So I'll start today, and I've brought along *The City and the City* by China Mieville, which is kind of a detective story. Completely bizarre, and I'm really happy to be able to talk about this book because I'm going to completely geek out for it. I love this book. I totally love this book. So, to get us started, I'll talk a little bit about what this thing is about, and as usual, I'll be careful with the spoilers.、Um, so, the idea is that you have two overlapping city states, and you have to understand that much about. The book, in order for the whole thing to make sense, and it's probably better to understand that bit going in.、Um, so we've got our, our main character, detective guy Theodore Borlu, and he's a resident of one of these two overlapping city states. And by that, I mean they literally overlap. They're two independent countries that occupy the same geographical territory, and they're both little city states down in some corner of. The Balkans, probably, like it's not really specified, but the idea is probably where you know Black Sea, Bulgaria is right now, and their names are Beshel and Ulkoma, and so Detective Borlu is a resident of Beshel.、Um, Beshel is kind of coming apart at the seams a little bit. It's not super rich. It's sort of this decaying European capital microstate. And its neighbor, which occupies the exact same patch of real estate, is called Ulkoma, which is doing better economically. There's more money. They're more technologically advanced. And did I mention they occupy the exact same piece of real estate? So the whole premise of the book is founded on the fact that you've got these two overlapping countries, completely independent of each other, and in order to make the whole system work. Everybody kind of has to buy into the laws and the customs of it. So, for example, I'll give an example here in Hong Kong to see if it makes any sense. So, imagine that Hong Kong Island is a single two city states, and so maybe the capital district of one of them is central, and the capital district of the other one is Wan Chai. And so, some of the roads could be shared by both countries. But then Wan Chai and Central are actually in different states, and you're not allowed to walk in between them. There's no MTR to take between them. They have their own separate train systems, but they don't interlock. It sounds very bizarre. It gets even better because everybody they dress a little differently, they speak different languages, and the thing is, because they're in literally neighboring. Patches of real estate, like Victoria Park, for example, could be split between both of the countries, and so the people on the the on one side of Victoria Park are sort of brought up believing that if there are people from the other country over in the other side, you can't see them; they're not there, and they all kind of buy into this system of like willful disbelief. And they dress differently enough that you sort of see it, and then it doesn't register. Oh, there's nobody actually there, even if physically there really is. Is that bizarre yet? 
It is certainly bizarre. And uh, the, the name of the book itself uh, reflects that bizarreness, the title The City and the City. But tell us more about the people. Who are the characters in the book? Well, mostly it's centered around this guy, um, Borloo, who gets called in to investigate because a young American woman um, has been on an archaeological mission and she ends up getting murdered. And it looks like the people who committed the murder may have actually committed an even more serious crime in Ulkoma and Bashel, which is called breach, which is to say breaching the border between these two cities. Because obviously the whole system depends on people obeying the law about not walking across the street into the other country in order to make the whole thing work. So this young woman's been murdered. And as Borlu begins to investigate, it emerges that he's going to have to get special permission to leave the country, which basically means going across town and walking through a special building to go back into the other side, into Ulkoma, to investigate on that side. He's never been there. It's across the street. And so he manages to do that and starts investigating, and he finds out there's actually something really messed up going on because it looks like there might actually be a hidden third country nestled in with these other two and she might have been investigating it and so there are these layers and layers of, of sort of geographical urban planning weirdness going on where it begins to emerge that there might actually be a third secret city in the margins somewhere that no one has actually noticed all this time and um, it gets really complicated because her family are brought in from the United States and they have no clue how the whole system works. And they kind of throw a big wrench in the works. But it's this really interesting sort of examination of like it, – and it's almost – the story itself is almost about the concept as much as it is, as it is about the murder mystery. Um, Borlu is a sort of traditional kind of hard-bitten, seen-everything detective character guy, you know, sort of archetypal, you know, Raymond Chandler-ish sort of thing. And all of that's very much influenced by the existing genre. Um, but then once he starts investigating the, the sort of the historical, political, and even just the urban nature of this and how these two interlocking cities coexist, it's really fascinating. It really sounds so quite amazing. It's, it sounds like it's really an examination of like relationships and separateness. Uh, they all live together, really. Uh, I'm seeing a bit of Gaza and Israel. Or That's actually, yeah. I, I read some interviews with him, and one of the places he was thinking about as he was planning this out and writing it was Jerusalem um, and like the, the settlements in Israel and Palestine. Um, another one that has had some influence on this actually is the former Yugoslavia, Sarajevo, because of what happened there back in the early 90s. You know, originally Sarajevo was this model of of of, of harmonious, more or less um, coexistence with the main ethnic groups there. And then obviously it all blew apart. So some of these things that we've seen before, you know, definitely come to bear in the story. Is it uh, like a modern Gulliver's Travel, sort of descriptions of weird and wonderful societies? Mieville does that in his other books more than he does it in this one. If you check out um, his second book, Perdido Street Station, and its two sequels, he's definitely doing the kind of Gulliver's Travel thing. Um, his book, The Scar, is amazing like that, 
With this one, interestingly, and I liked this book a lot because he toned that stuff down a lot, where he's got the chops as a writer to do that kind of thing and to pull it off beautifully, and he's got the command of language to make you want to keep reading. But then for this book, he was deliberately trying to write it more as a sort of hard-boiled detective story, but a little bit weird, too. Um, so, no, it's not exactly that, because as you're reading, you know, you sort of get the full idea of how the two cities work. And then, you know, it becomes a little bit more about the investigation of the mystery itself. Is it? Uh, does it work out as an allegory? You've got these different cities in the same space. Does it work? Does it tell us something about the human condition? I think so, and I think there are little in jokes along the way. I mean, one of my favorites is um, the the special building I mentioned, where if you need to legally pass from Bechel into Ulcoma or you know, going the other way around, it's called Copula Hall. And it's a little linguistics joke. The copula in linguistics is like the formal name for the verb to be. And so it's kind of an acknowledgement that these two spaces are exactly the same place. Um, so he does this. He, he, he has a lot of really sophisticated little jokes of that nature. But then I think the whole thing, as you're reading it, if you're informed about places like Sarajevo or Jerusalem or the West Bank, where there have been difficulties in you know, different groups of people being able to coexist, it does make you start thinking about that. It doesn't rub it in your face, but it does make you think about it while you're reading. Who's the, who's the book for? It's, uh, you, you started off by saying it's a kind of detective story, but uh, is it for your crime novel buff or somebody else? I can see somebody like that really liking it. I mean, I think that there's enough going on in the book that it would appeal to a lot of different people. It's smart, but not in the way that, like, if you're reading it, you feel like it's going over your head, but you appreciate the brains that went into, you know, coming up with this. Um, if people like detective or crime fiction, they ought to enjoy it. If people kind of like new, weird, urban, not exactly fantasy, because this is definitely not that. But if you do like sort of new, weird genre, um, you know, certainly check it out. I, I wouldn't try to put a gender label on it, because I think that it's just such a smart, well-written book that pretty much anybody that wants to read something truly interesting and different ought to enjoy it. Today I've been talking about The City and the City by China Mieville, who I must say is a gifted, truly smart, interesting writer, really worth checking out. You're listening to Read All About It on Radio 3. Now, my book today is also about relationships, but not, as, not relationships at a society level, but relationships at a personal level. The, the book is Commonwealth, which is the new book by Anne Patchett. In fact, we're being very, we're being very upmarket and sophisticated on this on the show today. Um, both Anne Patchett and our, the previous author we just talked about, China and Mieville, um, they're good, solid, uh, upscale, intelligent um, writers from intelligent readers like us and our listeners. I know, I know. And we're making everybody's IQ rise just by listening to us. Yes, I hope it works for us too. Uh, Anne Patchett's Commonwealth. Um, this book starts so simply. There's a guy called Bert, 
and he wants to get out of the house. He's, he's got three kids, right, three noisy kids, and his wife is pregnant, not in a good mood, so he has to get out of the house. Um, one of his friends has been invited to a, a christening party, so um, he decides to go to that. And, of course, when he gets there, you know, to, 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 to escape from noise, to go to a party, of course, is not the thing to do. So he's in this party. He doesn't really know anybody. Um, he wanders around. He helps with serving the drinks. They're making fruit cocktails. And eventually, because he just wants something to do, uh, someone says, can you go and find the baby, the baby that's been christening? Uh, we've been handing her around and we don't know where she is. So he goes to find the baby. He wanders around the garden. He wanders through the house. And eventually he finds the baby. The baby is in one of the rooms in the house with her mother. Then Bert looks at her mother. Her mother is the most beautiful woman he has ever seen in his life. His heart just stops completely. And he realizes that his life starts at this precise second. So he doesn't know what to say. Uh, he picks up the baby. He and the, the mother are both holding this baby. And he's saying, look, um, the baby's dad has asked to see the baby. I'm going to take her. And he leans over and he kisses the mother, who uh, is a very beautiful woman, who is enjoying the attention, this sudden uh, interest in her from this visitor called Bert, who she doesn't really know. And that's the first uh, part of the book. It's beautiful writing. Uh, people who have uh, read Anne Patchett, uh, she's most famous for a, a bestseller called Bel Canto a few years ago. But uh, people who know this uh, author will know that it's all about um, uh, rich storytelling where you really feel you know all the characters as real people. Once you've read this opening scene, you actually feel like you've been to a, a christening party. Anyway, the other thing you think, of course, is, OK, this book must be about some sort of marriage tension breakup, because here you have one married person, uh, father of three, soon to be father of four, kissing um, the, 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 a woman who's just had a new baby and belongs to a different family. So um, you think it's going to be about tension in this marriage or love affairs but it isn't because the the story then moves on suddenly many years later and it skips the whole divorce thing you find yourself reading about this blended family i think that's the that's the in phrase now so um uh, he had four kids uh, the other family had two kids now there's a family of six children and two adults now bert is married to the beautiful uh, mother of the christened baby, her name's Beverly. And so we've got this new blended family with six kids in it instead. And the author has skipped all the, uh, the in-betweens. She skipped it for a good reason. The theme of the book really is about how our lives are drifting, 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 and then suddenly there's a moment where we make a decision and some, everything changes. And then we drift and we drift and we drift, and then there's a moment where we make a decision and everything changes. And uh, we all know about this subconsciously. It's how life works. But uh, I can't think of an author who's captured it so beautifully. I can think of one other example. Um, the Australian writer Christos Cholkos wrote a novel called The Slap that was a huge, huge success down there. Uh, it was turned into a miniseries in Australia, and it was also uh, made into one in the U.S. as well. And there was the very same sort of thing where everything hinged around this one decisive moment. So it's refreshing that Ann Patchett did that. She actually skipped over the bits that we were all expecting, or we would all expect, and jumps into this future where, where the couple has gotten married and blended their families. 
does she do that later in the book again, or is this the one time that there's that kind of jump? In fact, the whole book is consists of these jumps. Um, there are entire decades missing. Uh, the book spans 50 years. So basically it starts off with uh, a character who doesn't really say anything in the first chapter. It's the baby being born, uh, being christened. And then the baby is a, is a woman in her 50s by the end of the book. So there are entire decades missed out. We just have these moments in the lives of these characters. And um, also, just to make it interesting, she puts the, the vignettes out of order. So not only do we uh, do we jump bits, but there are bits out of order. And why are there bits out of order? It's because there is one central element, one tragedy that happened in this family. And uh, the tragedy we learn about um, right at the end. And that's another theme of the book, which is really that... Uh, um, every family has 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 tragedies, has has things that go wrong, relationships that break up, uh, people who die, people who get terrible illnesses, and yet we cope with that. And we all have that in our families, in our relationships, and yet we cope with that and, and we move on. I think one of the reasons why Commonwealth uh, received such a, a great acclaim is that it's about ordinariness. It's about just parents and children and growing up and getting jobs there's no big drama in it and the one bit of drama in it which is this this uh, one tragic incident which is the death of one character i won't say which character it is this this death happens off stage so she is basically saying we're intelligent writers we're intelligent readers um, uh, and family life is actually the most interesting thing of all we don't need to have drama and airplanes and helicopters blowing up so is she writing a tearjerker here? Because it sounds as if in the hands of a lesser writer, it could just pitch into melodrama and turn into a soap opera and grab the Kleenex. So I've read Bel Canto, and I thought that it was a really moving book. And the ending itself was just spectacular in its sensitivity. So, I mean, is she doing the same thing here? No tears, no soppiness? It's actually, a, I think, a, a step further in that um, she avoids drama. She avoids tear-jerking scenes. It's just about ordinariness and the fact that we all have these uh, powerful things in our lives, but we get on with it. It's, it's really about getting on with it. So one member of this family has, has died in a tragic way, and yet uh, because it happens off-screen, uh, you know, off the stage of the book, um, instead of focusing on this big dramatic event, what happens is that we just see people living their lives normally with this actually subsumed into how they cope. Uh, and that's so realistic that when you're reading it, you think, wow, these are like real people. So it's actually a, a wonderful experience. It's like spending time with a family that's real. I'll tell you just one extra bit of the story, which I think doesn't spoil it. But um, when Franny, the baby, uh, grows up, um, she uh, uh, she has a, an affair with a writer who um, is looking for ideas and she tells the story of her family, the blended family and the tragedy that happened to this blended family and he uses it in a book. So suddenly the story becomes public property and so that gives us another uh, theme of the book uh, which is that um, who, who, who do, you know, we all have tragedies in our family. We will have family stories. Who do those stories belong to? I've been talking about Commonwealth by Anne Patchett. 
our classic this week is Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. If you haven't read this one, this is another one of those classics that are really well worth checking out. Um, when we decided to talk about this one and I, I revisited it, this is such an interesting, weird book. And the thing that I can't get beyond and I have so much admiration for is the fact that she wrote it and had it published before she was 21, maybe 22, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think she was. Yeah, I think she was eighteen when she came yes. up with the story. Right, yeah. eighteen when she came up with the story. I think she was like writing it around nineteen, and then I think it was published when she yeah, was about twenty one. Twenty one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's worth reading the story simply because uh, the the word Frankenstein conjures up images that are actually aren't really from the book. This sort of uh, monster with his hands sticking out with green skin that we we see in modern cartoons and things is actually very little to do with the book. Uh, the 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 Frankenstein's monster in the book is actually highly intelligent, isn't he? Highly intelligent, emotional, complex person who isn't called Frankenstein. Uh, in fact, he's referred to as Adam at one stage, isn't it? But you know, I, he doesn't really have a name, though. I mean, I think he's referred to as the Beast throughout. Yes, it. He's referred to as yeah. the insect at one stage. Uh, so, it, but it's basically a, a, an intelligent uh, creature who can't find his place in the world. And Frank, the word Frankenstein obviously uh, refers to the to the scientist who made him, who doesn't have an assistant called Igor. No, no, but he does have a beautiful wife who doesn't necessarily meet the happiest end. Yeah. In the story, which uh, in the original story, which uh, is kept in some versions... Um, it's really uh, an amazing story about a, a sea captain who is uh, going past the Arctic uh, and he sees a monster, a huge figure uh, running through the snow and uh, there's, a, there's an emaciated professor uh, and he eventually picks up the emaciated professor and the professor tells this story about his greatest experiment and how it, it escaped. Uh, and it's a very moving story. Victor Frankenstein, the scientist, is uh, is a wonderful character who uh, is not sure whether he's done something amazing or something terrible. And he's full of guilt. He wants to get rid of the monster, but at the same time, he's responsible for it. Right. And the whole thing is such a meditation on responsibility and how things can go badly if you actually try to duck your responsibility. And from a technical standpoint, the story is really interesting to me because it's a frame story. It starts out with the correspondence of the sea captain at the beginning. And then once the character of Victor Frankenstein takes over, it just has so much personality. And something, again, I think is a real gift that Mary Shelley has is her ability to flesh out these characters and make them so three-dimensional for such a young writer. That is phenomenal. Um, and it's interesting, too, that as he's made the monster and then it acquires a life of its own, one thing that has gotten into the movies is the desire for a female companion and his demand that he build her a lady friend. Um, that doesn't end well, obviously. But just the way that she spins it all out, it's just the pacing is amazing. Everything about it is just so well done. And the genesis of the story itself is is a is a great story. Yeah, I think that's probably my favorite origin story for a book. <laughs> right. So we've got a 16-year-old girl who uh, who elopes with a very naughty 21-year-old boy. 
and they they run off and uh, uh, they spend their time exploring Europe. And uh, at the age of 18, she goes and stays in a castle with Lord Byron. This is the young couple. She's 18. He's 23, I think, at that time, Percy Shelley. And they decide to have this competition. Uh, each of them will tell a horror story. And that single competition on that one holiday uh, produced the vampire legend and the Frankenstein story. So two of the greatest tropes in uh, in horror fiction from one party. Yeah, and there's another element to it as well, because when they were there, they were at a villa in, I want to say it was Lake Geneva. Lake Geneva think, yes. And that was supposedly the, the summer without sun or something like that. There'd been a volcanic eruption that messed up the climate over much of the northern hemisphere. And so it was like snowing in June in places. And so it was a completely wretched summer. It was dark and rainy and they were all sitting around probably drunk or on opium or something. I mean, let's be real. What else were they doing? So they were probably off their faces and was it Byron or Polidori whose idea it was to tell ghost stories? And she hadn't even thought of it yet and i think she couldn't immediately think of something and so after the party she was thinking and thinking about this idea that eventually came to her which she then wrote you know which which became frankenstein um so yeah like i guess probably what the the moral of that story is that climate change might actually not be such a bad thing <laughs> right and the the idea of sort of death and life uh, why is an 18 year old girl thinking about these things well, one reason is that she actually had a baby. She became pregnant uh, just after the um, this this night in this castle, and uh, her baby lived only two weeks. Um, her husband, who's, who sounds a bit of a cad, uh, refused to have anything to do with it and stormed out of the house, horrified at this this baby. The baby was born prematurely, was so it was a tiny stick-like, uh, scary thing, and uh, the scene where Victor. Frankenstein is horrified by what he's made and storms out of the house. He's obviously lifted from her husband's own reaction. Also, at the same time, her half-sister died, committed suicide. So she was surrounded by life and death, these big things which uh, must have preyed on the mind of this 18-year-old girl. That's understandable. And I think also she was keeping some very erudite company because the circle of friends that she and her husband had were some of the most influential writers of the day and they were all political radicals too so in all of their work they're not afraid to take on some fairly dangerous controversial themes even by today's standards the full title of the book when it came out was frankenstein or the modern prometheus prometheus of course was the uh, the greek god who created humanity so frankenstein is the is the professor who's creating humanity or is it humanity yeah that's an interesting uh, way to look at it because there are people who have actually called frankenstein the first modern science fiction novel. And obviously there were things that had been published in the past, but science fiction as a genre really didn't begin to emerge until around the same time uh, Frankenstein was published. So there is an argument to be made there. The only other thing I would add to that was that Prometheus was a terrible movie. So do go and look at Frankenstein. It's a great book. It's our classic for today. And we've been talking about The City and the City by China Mieville and Commonwealth by Anne Patchett. That's all for this edition of Read All About It. Bye-bye.